Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, where we have so much science that you will not believe how much science there is going to be on this roughly half an hour of um, science, I suppose. Uh, Joining me, as always, is Claire and Stu. Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well, hello, Chris. Um, Yeah, it is half an hour of science. We're very excited. Yes, yes. (laughs) And we're also excited um, because I, well, I talked to someone that we don't normally have on the show. We have a guest this week, Christina Schallenberg, who's a researcher from the University of Tasmania, and um, and Christina's been part of a part of a research project that has been looking at uh, what has become of the ash and the smoke from the bushfire season from the bushfires. Um, in 2019 and 2020 when um, so all the ash and smoke has ended up in the ocean and it has caused an algal bloom between New Zealand and South America roughly the size of Australia yeah it is it is a big big algal bloom um, so Christina's going to talk to us about um, her research that is it's a collaboration across um, across a bunch of different scientists looking at that algal bloom, what they know about it and how they did it, which is fascinating because um, she's got some very interesting uh, facts around how many robots there are in the ocean just at any one time. There's just like many, many robots swimming around in the ocean, taking scientific measurements and sending them back through satellites. So not only are we going to get a story about algal bloom today, but there's also going to be some robot content. Fantastic. Should we be more worried about the robots in the sea or on the land? Don't be worried about either robot, so long as they're uh, they're they're gathering scientific data. Okay. Yeah, Except yeah. They once you. they once they turn on you, maybe you should be worried then. Fair enough. Uh, and Stu, what kind of robot or non-robot related news have you got for us this week? Well, it's not robot related news, and I, I, I'm not worried about robots as long as they stick to the three laws of robotics. We should be fine. Uh, I <laughs> yeah, think because they're people out. program that into their robots. Absolutely, totally. I think it's it's essential that they do. Um, only if they get to sort of some sort of sentient level, anyway. But no, look, I'm not talking about robots, um, but. Uh, have you have you heard about the bird? <laughs> well, I've heard about a few birds. Well, every everybody knows that the bird is the word. No, 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 really. But I am talking about birds. I don't know why I've got birds. I've got birds on the brain. I'm I'm bird brained lately. Uh, but I was reading about uh, songbirds. I don't know if you know what songbirds are. They're a, they're a huge group of birds. They're all over the world. Um, and, you know, it, it came into a little bit of uh, colonial history that people from Europe came to Australia and they found all these songbirds and they named them after the songbirds of Europe and they 
taxonomically assign them to different families and all these sorts of things. But that's not actually the way songbirds evolved. Songbirds came from Australia and spread out all over the world. And the way that we figured this out is actually really interesting. And it's all to do with what they can taste is how we figured this out. Ah. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to be looking at the, uh, the, the, the taste buds of the birds and, and what can that tell us about bird evolution around the world? Well, I hope that, um, that we promote this, this story far and wide. We should tweet about that one, definitely, is what I'm trying to say. Looking for a good pun, as always. Well, on with the show. So the black summer bushfires left millions of hectares of charred earth, loss of human and animal life, and many of us choking on the smoke in cities and regional areas. But what happened to the smoke after the fire? Where did it go and what effect has it had on the ecosystem? Now, someone who's been asking this question and now has some answers is researcher Christina Schallenberg from the University of Tasmania. And Christina joins us this week. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Now, Christina, tell us, where does smoke go after a big fire like the Black Summer bushfires? So that's actually not really my area of expertise, but from what we can tell based on satellite imagery, well, first of all, it goes up in the atmosphere and then it can be transported by, you know, the winds and the transport mechanisms of the atmosphere into all sorts of directions. And from what I understand, these particular bushfires were so intense that smoke and ash and other particles actually went higher into the atmosphere than is usually the case. And therefore, they could also be transported farther, um, just stronger winds up there, I suppose. And also it takes them longer to come back down. So ultimately, I assume they all come back down or it's certainly a large percentage. And that's what happened in the study um, that I was part of. So we, we could see with our instrumentation that a large part of um, the ash from, well, maybe it wasn't even a large part, to be honest, but a part that we could measure um, ended up in the Pacific Ocean. So in the South Pacific between New Zealand and um, South America. And it was a patch of ocean that was um, larger than Australia. Wow. Uh, and we could, we could connect this deposition of the ash um, and the particles that were, you know, rose with the ash in the atmosphere. It's actually also dust particles and like earth, probably all sorts of things that are being kind of sucked up into the atmosphere along with the, with the smoke. So we can tell that these, these particles ended up in the ocean and there they fertilized an algae bloom. So in, it's a mm-hmm. part of the ocean that has one particular problem, which is it doesn't have enough iron. So any kind of ocean well, phytoplankton, let's talk about phytoplankton. So they're actually little uh, macroscopic unicellular plants that mm-hmm. photosynthesize. So they're like any plants um, on land as well. They're green. They do the same thing as any you know of your house plants would do. Um, and for that, they need nutrients and light, obviously. And so there's always going to be some limiting nutrient unless the light is a limiting factor. So there's always something that stops growth at some level. Otherwise, it would just go forever. Right. And in the Southern Ocean, the thing that's really stopping the growth is um, iron. So it's really just this element that we can think of. is the one thing. It's like a vitamin for us. They don't need much of it, but it's absolutely essential that they have it. And in the Southern Ocean, in part because there's not many land masses there to 
um, pr provide the iron, that's actually a very iron limited region. So, and we could measure in the dust particles, like some of them actually were transported into different regions, for example, into Tasmania. And there was a measuring station where we intercepted some of these particles and we could measure that there was iron in them. And that this, that this iron in particular was actually a little bit more soluble, which means it was more readily going into the water so that the algae could take it um, than otherwise, like other particles would be. And was this happening in different parts of the world as well? Or was is it sort of localised specifically to this sort of like area between New Zealand and South America because of the sort of winds and, and weather patterns around the Pacific Ocean? That's a very good question. So there's actually several answers to this. One would be we don't really know because we don't always look for this. So in this particular case, even here, it was a sort of coincidence that one of the researchers involved was actually looking for this sort of thing in a different region. And then when this fire happened, um, I don't actually know who had the original idea to then say, look, we should really look if something ended up you know, elsewhere and we could see something. And this is the biggest bloom that I'm talking about, the one between New Zealand and South mm. America. There was actually another one south of Australia as well that was quite intense. But there were also areas where we're quite sure that particles, at least they had a very high concentration in the atmosphere and chances are they ended up in the ocean, but there was no response. And that's probably mm. because the phytoplankton in these areas we're not missing what the ash could bring them. So right. it, it really has to be matching. But in theory, um, and we do know that for dust, like from desert storms and stuff, we do, do know that dust fertilizes the ocean. So we know that there's a land-sea connection um, that is well-established. So this sort of thing happens all the time to some degree, but we're not always looking is one problem. Mm. Um, and the other one is that you have to have the right match between what you bring in from the atmosphere and what is actually missing in the ocean. So you're using sort of phytoplankton and algae uh, sort of interchangeable here, but yes. um, they are small plants um, and you say that they absorb the carbon dioxide. Does that mean, you know, an algal bloom here um, on such a large extent, potentially the size of Australia, is that a good thing? Is that, is that, um, is that absorbing carbon dioxide from our atmosphere? It is definitely doing that. Um, well, I, I'm not sure about the atmosphere part. Definitely for the phytoplankton to grow, we know they have to take up carbon dioxide. And there is always carbon dioxide also already dissolved in the water. So, you know, that's first what they take up. And only if there's enough of a deficit and enough time will that then be resupplied from the atmosphere. So there will always be a lag. But we do know, we could calculate that the carbon dioxide that would have been taken up by this particular bloom was equivalent roughly to what was actually coming out from the bushfire. So it was a huge amount of carbon dioxide that would have been absorbed by these phytoplankton. And that part we can be quite confident about, but we do not know is where the phytoplankton really ended up. I don't assume that it's been a bad thing for the ocean because it was actually not a very high concentration. The, the thing that made it big was partly its size, its extent, and the other part is that there is so little phytoplankton usually in this area of the ocean and at this time of year it would actually have been in decline mm. so that was kind of a double whammy that you know you really didn't need much to actually get a huge response and so we don't know where these phytoplankton ended up therefore we don't know where the carbon dioxide ended up only if this kind of bloom sank which is very unlikely in this case if it had sunk all the way to the deep ocean then it would be sequestered for about a thousand years or more 
but that is an unlikely thing to have happened, I would say. It's more likely that whatever eats phytoplankton, like some zooplankton, say, like that's just tiny animals that can't really swim against the current, that they might have, you know, had a windfall and then someone else ate these guys. And so maybe there could be a good recruitment of some sort of fish for a year. And it's definitely not been a strong enough concentration of phytoplankton that I would expect any bad effects. So I wouldn't expect any low oxygen zones to develop from this sort of thing. Um, certainly not just from a single event like that. But yeah, we actually couldn't study the, um, the fate of these phytoplankton. So we don't know for sure where they ended up. And if they just got recycled and things just got eaten, then the, the carbon dioxide would basically have just come back out very shortly after. Now, you mentioned that this has this research has just been published in Nature. I'm fascinated to hear from you what sort of what sort of tools you use to measure an algal bloom the size of Australia. How do you and your fellow researchers go about this? That's actually been one of the very exciting aspects of this research that we used very novel technologies um, without which it would not even have been possible to find such a bloom because there's no research vessels just hanging out there waiting for something interesting to happen, nor could you just fund a you know, research voyage on short notice, just hoping that you could find something. So this was really all based on autonomous measurements. So one thing being satellites, which have been out there for 30, 40 odd years now. So they're not as novel anymore in a way, but they still keep getting better and better in their sensitivities and what they can do. And so the main part in a way for this research or the first inkling that anything interesting was going on was all from satellites. So the satellites both showed us where the um, particles in the atmosphere went. Mm. Um, And it also then showed us um, what happened in the ocean. So there's sensors that can sense the color of the ocean. So ocean color sensors, and they're more sensitive than our eyes. So our eyes actually probably would not have detected anything amiss in this bloom. Um, But the satellite sensors could tell that there was basically a greening of the ocean and that's how we could get the extent of this uh, of the area of the bloom Um, but also we wanted to be sure because you know when you have stuff in the atmosphere and you're trying to sense the color of the ocean you might have actually some sort of bias or something so we were a little Mm -hmm. bit worried that what the satellite showed us wasn't actually what we thought we were looking at Um, So we wanted to be sure we're really measuring the right thing. And that's where these ocean robots came in and were very, very handy. So there are a bunch of robots out in the ocean at any given time these days. It's about 4,000 we're aiming for at all times. There are 4,000 robots in the ocean at any one time. Just um, the Pacific Ocean or is that all? Oh, that's the world ocean. (laughs) So anywhere where it's deep enough. So they need at least 2,000 meter depths for the most part. Wow. Um, And they're very What are they doing? Well, they measure things when they're not sleeping. So (laughs) what they do is they hang out usually at a thousand meter depth um, and they spend 10 days there roughly. And then they wake up and then they go to 2000 meters. So they sink deeper and then they come all the way up, which takes them like six to 10 hours, depending. Um, And on the way up, they measure and they measure a bunch of things, depending on what type of robot they are. So they're called Argo floats. And once they're done measuring, they come to the surface and actually come through the surface. They have a little antenna. They talk to the satellite and say, here's my data, please take it. And then they go back down. So they they do that all the time on these 10 day cycles. It's very exciting. Most of them measure only two things, I should say. So there's a lot of floats that measure temperature and salinity. And that's really important for our weather forecasts, even these days. And yeah, for ocean circulation measurements, all sorts of things. But there are a few floats, well, I shouldn't say a few, um, we're aiming for a thousand at any given time. I think we're a bit short of that at the moment. 
but they're called biogeochemical floats and they have six additional sensors. And these sensors are all to measure things like particles in the water, phytoplankton in particular, even nutrients, how much light is there, the pH and oxygen. So they measure a bunch of other things. Um, and so we were lucky that three of these floats were in the area of the bloom. And so with these, we could be sure that really in the water, something unusual was going on. And that really helped, I think, make this a punchy paper that, you know, had enough grit to really, you know, be also a high level paper, because otherwise you could have said, oh, just the satellite stuff, who knows, it could have, you know, had some biases or something. So it was really cool to bring all these things together and also bring all these experts together, because any of these data sources are not stuff that you just... I mean, you can download pictures these days, but to do proper analysis, you kind of have to be an expert at it. So all these people worked together um, and brought their expertise. And that was actually part of the fun of this paper. Actually, yeah. Now you know uh, that these algal blooms are happening in, in the Pacific. Um, what are the next sort of steps within your research? So I'm not doing this myself, but I'm supervising or co-supervising, I should say, a PhD student who's working, who was also on this uh, paper that was just published. But he is now also doing the next step of analysis and looking in more depth, not just how much phytoplankton was there, which is what we've so far gotten from the satellites, but he's also looking at can we say anything about what sort of phytoplankton? Were they big? Were they small cells? Did they change? In the, did, did, the, did the community change at all? Even he can look a little bit at were they happy? Because one thing that happens when you give them iron, there's actually a signal that's called phytoplankton fluorescence that can change in response to this iron input even before they start to grow. So basically, you know, they notice something good is happening and the cells change in some some fashion. And then it takes them a while to actually pick up the growth. And so he's looking into that sort of signal to just try to get a better idea of what actually happened out there. Well, Christina, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today to talk us through your research and, yeah, the environmental flow on effects that are happening after the um, bushfire devastation in 2019 and 2020. And also letting us know that there is a huge I don't want to say army let's say community of ocean robots um, out there uh, which has just blown my mind Um, so Christina best of luck for the next stages of the research and um, yeah come back on Lost in Science anytime and talk about what those ocean robots are up to. Cool thank you very much. I'm Maggie Adaman Pocock and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. One of the criticisms people make of science is that its origins are largely European and this Eurocentric worldview has affected the perception of the world by scientists who are seeking to study the world. Uh, And this is kind of a reasonable assertion to make. The Enlightenment beginning in the 17th century was based around Europe and many of the protocols of science were laid down during that time. And as colonialism of European powers spread through the world, science often went along, and the interpretation of nature through a European lens is very easy to see in science of the time, especially the way things were named. They were named after things people knew. And, you know, people tend to write about what they know, and as European-trained botanists and zoologists came in contact with organisms they'd not seen before they tried to link them to species they did know. Uh, In many cases, the relationships to known plants and animals were assumed rather than tested, uh, and the evolutionary theories applied to them were based on what was labelled first more than anything else. So 
they'd you know they'd start with an animal they knew or a plant they knew in Europe, and they'd base the evolutionary relationship on that first plant that they'd found or that they knew about. Now, in the late 20th century, new tools became available which allowed science to look not only at the shape of living organisms, but at the DNA that builds living organisms. And a much more accurate picture of evolution began to replace that Eurocentric biology of earlier centuries. Genetic analysis of organisms allowed biologists to directly measure how closely related different organisms were. And by looking at the presence of specific genes in these organisms, even they could evaluate how they had moved into new areas and how they spread out around the world. So, for example, the songbirds. Do we know what songbirds are? They're like small things that sing a song, aren't they? Well... They fly. They're big birds. They, they also fly. Yeah, they're called passerine birds. Ooh. That is that is absolutely true. So the songbirds are a group of around 5,000 species of birds. They're found throughout the world. And as the name suggests, they have the ability in many species of producing elaborate songs. So a lot of songs, you know, this is the difference between bird songs and bird calls. Bird calls are generally very repetitive, mm. whereas bird song is quite elaborate and, you know, it's territorial and mating benefits and all these other things. Can you give an example of a songbird, Stu? Oh, a robin is yeah. you know, probably one of the best known ones and that, that's given its name to lots of other birds which kind of look like robins around the world as well but that's probably you know a, a good example. Um, so the songbirds or passeriformes as they are but you know, uh, zoologically known or ornithologically known probably is a better word to use. Well known in other parts of the world and when Europeans arrived in Australia, they related the local species back to those songbirds that they already knew, which is why we've got, you know, finches and robins mm. and all these familiar names from, from Europe that they brought along with them. And the assumption that they made was that the songbirds had colonised Australia after evolving in the Northern Hemisphere. Total assumption. Total assumption. There, there was no reason to assume that was what happened, but they were doing the same thing, so they kind of went, hey, the birds probably beat us to the punch or the flap or the peck. I don't know what, what, it, <laughs> what it would be with birds. Um, and you can see that in the names that they've given. I mean, the magpie that we've got here is absolutely nothing like the magpie of yeah. Europe, but it's got the name because that they went, hey, that kind of looks like a magpie. It's black and white. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of what magpie means. Um, it's well established, as we know, that birds are descended from a group of carnivorous dinosaurs, but many of the songbirds are omnivorous, and some feed predominantly on nectar and other sweet foods. So a lot of carnivorous animals are not able to sense sweet flavours, so some researchers were wondering why these birds suddenly switch to sweet foods and how could they figure out what are the sweet foods if they can't taste it but obviously they could taste sweet foods and this is a question which was raised how did they evolve this ability to taste sweet things that's right because yeah we i think we talked about this before how yeah carnivorous animals some of them can't taste like cats for instance don't have like the taste buds for sweet things because they don't eat sweet food they don't seek the nutrition from sweet things they eat meat and so they don't need to taste sugary things 
Yeah, and there's no benefit to them for tasting sweet things, so why do they do it? But in the birds, obviously a lot of birds do eat a lot of sweet foods, and at some point they must have developed this ability because other birds don't eat sweet foods. A lot of them are still carnivorous, mm. like, our, like our magpie, for example. Um, so uh, by analysing the genes responsible for taste, a group of researchers led by Dr. Maud Baldwin of the Max Planck Institute in Germany discovered a single gene change in taste receptors was how they could start to taste the sugar in certain foods. A, a single, just just one single gene change or one yeah. single... one single change of uh, gene in the receptor for taste. So... Wow. Birds, like humans, have a set of umami taste receptors <laughs> which respond to meaty flavours. That's what they taste. And that's, you know, when you eat wow. meat or mushrooms yeah. or miso Parmesan broth. Parmesan cheese. Parmesan oh. cheese. Mm. All trigger these umami receptors. And the birds have these as well. But a single change, a single gene change in that receptor makes it responsive to sugars. And that is what allows the birds to taste sweet things. Also, oh, their sweet receptor evolved from a umami receptor. Exactly, and just oh, from a, just from a right. single change in that in that receptor. And was it that way around, or was it the other way around? No, the umami was there first because carnivores all carnivores. Can taste umami. Oh, of course, yeah. it was it was from the tiny dinosaurs. Yeah, from the tiny saws, um, and. They so then they then they tracked the presence of these genes in songbird populations around the world and found that sweet-toothed birds, well, not really sweet-toothed, the sweet-beaked birds, <laughs> sweet beaked evolved birds. evolved very early in Australia and then spread throughout the world. So the human colonizers got it the wrong way around. It was the sugar-loving songbirds that colonized the rest of the world. Wow! Rather than moving to Australia from somewhere else. And it makes a lot of sense that these sugar seekers would move into other areas with less competition because no other birds would have been seeking out the sweet fruits and the nectar-laden flowers before them because they would fly somewhere new and go, hey, no competition. What a great place to live. But hang on, when did they, when did they spread out then? Oh, hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago from Australia. The reason I ask is because the, um, you know, with flowers and stuff, you have a lot of like evolution alongside the pollinators, so you know that they mm. have evolved to attract things like birds to pollinate them. So they, they may they may have already had pollinators, and potentially like the insects. birds displaced those pollinators oh. as they spread out. Um, but also, a lot of a lot of flowers don't have uh, very specific pollinators. They don't really care who who spreads their pollen around as long as it happens. There is. Uh, one exception, though, and it's a good example of convergent evolution. Hummingbirds, who feed predominantly on nectar, can also identify sweet tastes, but they are not descended from the songbirds. So yeah, I I, I can't think of what a hummingbird song would sound like. <laughs> the, the one in the one in the old cartoons used to go, <laughs> yeah. but that was just cartoon birds. Yeah. So. Again, but, doesn't really count. Yeah, they don't. They don't really sing a proper song because they can't remember the words. They just <laughs> they just hum it. Yeah. Um, but so the hummingbirds can taste sweet flavors as well and identify sweet taste. 
But being that they didn't uh, descend from the songbirds, they evolved this ability all on their own. There's a separate occurrence of evolving right. uh, sweet taste receptors, and it's pretty much the same thing. So their umami receptors were altered by changes in the genes and they could taste sweet things. It's a pretty beneficial change in your genes to be able to access such a high energy diet in the environment that well, nobody, no other bird is accessing. Well, especially, you know, if you look at hummingbirds, they, they basically only eat sugar and that's how they can maintain that ridiculous, uh, you know, wing speed that they have. Although um, a um, carnivorous hummingbird is a truly terrifying idea. Uh, probably not. They're they're so tiny. <laughs> Unless there was a flock of them, you'd probably be okay. But they're very fast moving, so it would kind of be scary. There's a horror movie in the making there. But it really does show what happens when you eat too much sugar. <laughs> very hyperactive. <clears throat> Look, I think, um, personally, I've got to say, I, I tend to prefer the umami flavours. Um, and having looked into it, our sweet receptors are functionally very close to the umami and the bitter taste receptors in humans. So uh, we, we, we have potentially had similar changes at some distant point in our evolutionary history. But uh, if, I, if I had to choose between all the flavours, I think I would leave the sweets for the birds. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.